from KBBS in Hollywood, California, this is Rocketeer Radio! And now, here are your hosts, Ian Westoff and Tommy Romero! Hey, welcome to Rocketeer Radio. This is Ian Westoff. You may be wondering where the Toy Lines podcast went. Don't worry, we'll be back next week. Consider this episode zero of the future Rocketeer Radio podcast. Uh, with me, as always, is my good friend. Neville Sinclair. <laughs> the Laughing Bandit. Also known as. Tom Romero. Hi, everyone. And we're going to today discuss the comic, the movie, probably the toys, and a little bit of the reboot in uh, Disney Junior show of The Rocketeer. You know, you know I've been a Rocketeer fan for, geez, since uh, high school and before I met you. Um, do you remember your first introduction to The Rocketeer, how you found out about it? Was it the movie? Was it the comic? It was definitely the movie. Never heard of The Rocketeer before it. I thought it was just a cool Disney idea. I started getting into it when I found out about Dave Stevens. And his association with Jack Kirby at Pacific Comics. Okay. So from there, I started reading the comics. Very, you know, interesting book. It's a great book. I like the the time aspect of it. Yeah, I love the, the 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. So what about you? When when was your first reaction to it? It's the same thing. I was uh I was in high school. Uh, I think it was between sophomore. That's summer of a being a sophomore. So I was at the movies seeing um, What About Bob? Which is a great movie, by the way. They had a trailer for The Rocketeer. And I was like, this looks interesting. And at the same time, uh, I was reading Comic Scene. And for all listeners who don't know, Comic Scene was this incredible magazine that covered comic books and cartoons. Uh, I believe it was put up by the same people who did Starlog and Fangoria. Comic Scene just covered better than any Wizard issue, I felt. I still feel to this day. And Comic Scene and Starlog would have interviews with um, the cast of The Rocketeer. And that's how I found out it was a comic. And I had never seen it before, the comic that is. And, um, you know, I kind of learned about it that way. And it wouldn't be until, I guess I was in college, I was able to track down some issues and read it. And if I was going to be perfectly honest with, with everybody, I'm more of a fan of the movie than the comic. I, li- I like the comic. I think Dave Stevens is a brilliant artist. You know, I wish there was more that he did of The Rocketeer. He now, did he do anything prior to The Rocketeer? He did a lot of storyboarding for movies. He did stuff for, uh, he did a lot of pitch boards for Raiders of the Lost Ark. He also did, uh, I think he storyboarded Michael Jackson's Thriller. So he was, um, and he worked for uh, animation. He worked for Hannibal Bear, where he met, uh, is it Doug Wildly? Create, who created um, Johnny Quest. You know, he did that. He uh, apprenticed with Russ Manning, drawing Tarzan. He was always kind of, I think he knew Jack Kirby as, yeah, like you said, he knew Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. And just what happened was he was doing something with Pacific and they were like, hey, we, we got a six pages we need to fill. You want to do something? He was like, yeah, okay. Well, I didn't know what. But he had always been a fan of flying in, in uh, planes and in the period of the 1930s. And he kind of, so he drew this image of, of the Rocketeer and kind of it's kind of like this action thing. And that, if you look on Pacific's Star Slayer number one, 
That is the advertisement. So you could call it the very first appearance of the Rocketeer, even though the Rocketeer doesn't appear until issue two of Star Slayer in Pacific. And it had um, a very interesting comic career because it went from company to company for a while. So let me stop you there real quick. When was the actual moment that was it when you saw him on Starlog or the movie or when was the actual moment you were like, this guy's incredible. I I have to be a, a Rocketeer historian for for this guy. I think it was, of course, between the movie. There really it had to be the movie, but it was also like reading about the movie. And in the movie, in, in reading about the movie, they would reference the comic a lot. And I was just like, I don't know this comic. And they did a write up on the comic, um, I think, or maybe they, they interviewed Dave Stevens. And I kind of started learning it, but I was just much more. Because the movie stuff is there, I was just like reading and absorbing in, in Cinefix magazine, which is a great magazine all about um, the special effects in Hollywood. It had this great issue with uh, the Rocketeer flying on the cover, and he does um, they explain all the special effects in the movie, and that's that's like a podcast in itself. Just how they made him fly, which I'll go into a little here, but like explosions and miniatures and building things. But it was just uh, picking these things up and just. Myself being a fan of, I love the 30s and 40s. Um, I love the music, uh, uh, you know, just that whole time period. There's something about it. I love. I love flying. I really want to fly in a biplane. Personally, I just want to do it. So I love to fly and kind of learning about um, the history of like air shows and stuff like that, and about uh, the Beeman's gum, which um, is in the movie. It's not in the comic, but it's in the movie. And Beeman's gum pilots would chew because it had a thing called Pepsid in it, which was good for your stomach. So um, the fact that they included that in, you know, is something I learned years later why. And, and you can still find the gum today. Specialty stores carry it. Some other stores carry it. Sometimes it's seasonal. But it does, I, don't, I don't think it has the Pepsid anymore. But I still buy it. But the first time I saw it in the store, I nearly, like, flipped my lid. I was like, Demon's gum. You know, it's like the Rocketeer. I don't know. like five packs. Um, and it's pretty good gum. It is. But yeah, it was just learning about the movie. And I just, when I like something, I just want to know as much as I can about it. And that was the thing about the Rocketeer. It's just like, I wanted to know as much as I can about that movie. Then learning about Dave Stevens, um, you know, he had a career doing uh, other drawings. But I was just interested in, in his Rocketeer stuff. And um, this, I always wished I could have had a chance to meet him. Because he seemed just like a really nice guy, very talented man. I mean, you can't look at a, a, his book and be like, he's not talented. He's just like, his artwork is just incredible. And uh, what he created in this eight-part chapter, which is how he felt the Rocketeer was, it was an, like a movie serial. So there's eight. he did eight issues, and they're actually called the chapters. What he did in eight chapters, they were able to make into a live-action movie pretty impressive with what he came up with. And it was kind of like, again, it was spur of the moment. Like he, he always had in mind planes, flying old movies, uh, Bulldog Cafe, which is a real place back in the day. So he always had this stuff in mind and he just kind of was given the opportunity for six pages. He's kind of like kind of going as he went along in a way. And, and he made something pretty cool out of it. And then the first appearance or the first issue of the Rocketeer was Pacific's Star Slayer number two. 
So Pacific put out four issues. So it's very confusing if you want to get it to go into this. So the first story arc has five issues total, but four were put out through Pacific. So it was Star Slayers number two and then three. Then they put out um, Pacific Present, and that was issues three and four. But that didn't end the storyline until Eclipse picked it up with one issue, which kind of finished the first story. So then Eclipse picked it up with one issue, finishing out that first storyline. And that was just called The Rocketeer. So after um, Pacific and Eclipse, it then went to Comico, who did two issues, which was then called The Rocketeer Adventure Magazine. After those two issues on a cliffhanger for the final issue, it was six years before they got the last issue out. And the last issue came out through Dark Horse Comics. That one, that last storyline. So if you look at these comics, the first one is like his origin. And then in a good chunk of the movie and then issue two, uh, I'm sorry, storyline two would be, uh, it's called Cliff's New York Adventure. And that's continuing on after the first one. And there are still some things from that issue, that storyline that appear in the movie. So they did pull a lot of stuff from the, the movies, from the comics, the eight issues. Now, how long how long did the comic series start uh, before the movie? Well, I believe the comic came out in '82, okay. and then about a year or two after, they started trying to get a movie made, and uh, they went to every studio. Every studio said no. And you're talking at about a time too, where it's like, even when it got to the point where it was going to be made, the biggest movies so far, comic wise, was uh, Superman, and then. Batman 89 and you know, people at that point thought, oh everything has to be dark Rocketeer's not a dark comic and they'd never made it that way did they ever uh, try it for a TV show no but there was a point when Dave Stevens and um, uh, Denny Bilson and, and, and uh, Paul DeMeo I believe the names were the writers they were going to try to do it on their own as an independent film and um, they were kind of do it as a black and white indie film low budget i believe dave stevens was going to play the rocketeer because if you look at him the rocketeer looks very much like dave stevens uh cliff secord he originally pictured uh there's an actor named sterling holloway so sterling holloway he did a a lot of stuff um he did musical reviews vaudeville and radio and he had a really familiar voice which i'll get to in a moment he also did silent movies uh, I think his first one was in 1926. He was kind of like this ordinary looking guy. That's kind of who he wanted him to look like. So after the silent film era, uh, when talkies, as they were called, came out, Sterling Holloway continued his, his movie career. And it's very interesting. He's got this very distinct voice. And you'll most recognize him from Disney pictures. He did a lot of narration uh, for movies or for shorts. And he voiced several famous characters, uh, one being a silly old bear. He's the voice of Winnie the Pooh, the, uh, the original version. He also voiced Flower from Bambi. Which I think it was the skunk. Uh, probably the grown-up version of the young one. He did the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. And he did Ka, the snake in Jungle Book. And narration-wise, he did um, the Make My Music was a movie. He did... Um, the narration for Peter and the Wolf. And then he did shorts like the Pelican Snipe and Lambert, the Sheepish Lion. So when you think of Winnie the Pooh, kind of think of 
that's what Sterling Holloway sounded like. Uh, excuse me. Um, yeah, go ahead. I'm a Jim Cummings guy. Like I, yeah. Like whenever I think of Winnie the Pooh, I think of Jim. Think Cummings. of Jim Cummings, of course. Right. But so, um, so what did the original guy sound like? Just like Maybe that. Just like Jim Cummings. Jim Cummings is a perfect, like perfect Winnie the Pooh. Wow. I, I saw an interview with Jim Cummings actually, where he was in a diner or a restaurant, and he was, you know, just getting his food and whatnot. And at that point. Sterling Holloway, who did work with Disney for like 40 years, he had uh, officially retired. And Jim Cummings is there and he heard somebody order, you know, a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or something. And he, and he looked around and it was it was Sterling Holloway. And he was like, I'm, that's Winnie the Pooh. You know, to him, that was Winnie the Pooh. Sure. And he's like, you know, do I speak to him? Do I not speak to him? And he didn't go up to him, but it was kind of like this moment for him. You know, and he, and he actually, he's said in an interview how much like he respects the character because he's carrying on this tradition of Winnie the Pooh from the very beginning with Sterling Holloway. And that's a, a big thing. It's not like he took it and he's trying to make it his own. He's he's following in like his footsteps of this this person who did these, this great voice for um, for generations and now he's the voice for generations and you know sometimes you hear like the current kermit the frog you listen to it and you're like geez none of these sound like jim henson and sometimes you could hear a person and you'd be like it sounds just like jim, you know like like like, like uh Sterling holloway so jim cummings is an extremely talented voice artist and voice artistry is something we can do a, a whole podcast on since it's so involved with cartoons yeah so it's uh he he really takes that seriously sterling holloway was go he's kind of what he had in mind for the comic now like as far as the backstory of the character i always find it funny because the comic book cliff secord and the movie cliff secord are two kind of different guys uh the movie he he's kind of like this he's a good guy you know he, he's got this girl he, and he's trying to make it in you know flying planes and whatnot and um he's just he might not be the the smartest guy he he, he gets a little jealous and he makes some stupid mistakes but the comic book version was always a bit more rough around the edges you know he kind of i wouldn't call him a jerk but i would say he could be a bit more 1930s 1930-ish like he wasn't uh, he just kind of was you know a little little tougher and um according to how dave stevens his cliff secord's background he was born in on october 26 1911 on a train traveling from Gary, I believe, Indiana, to Ch Chicago, and he was delivered in a, the dining car during dinner. He was raised near Detroit, but ran away as a teen during the circus. Uh, during the Depression, he saw his first air race, the 1931 All-American Flying Derby, um, and this just blew him away. When he saw the GB, which is uh, the plane he flies in the comic in the movie, which is basically like an engine with wings is an extremely dangerous plane to fly. So when, when he sees this plane, he is hooked on flying from then on. He's uh he spends all his time in an airfield you know, being a gopher, talking to the mechanics, doing anything to be around planes, you know, kind of talking himself into getting a flying lesson or two. In 1935, Cliff found the remains of Lowell Bell's GB. This gentleman tried to beat, the speed record, but crashed and died. Cliff found the plane in an airfield in 
uh, in Detroit, like a scrapyard for an airfield. And the mechanic to that plane was a gentleman named Peavy, who knew the former pilot. And Cliff became friends with them and kind of talked him into selling it to him. And after two and a half years, he finally got the plane built. He also had a career in carnivals. So he kind of ran away as a kid and joined the carnival for a while. He, with this GB, he christened it Blind Bulldog. And as you can see, bulldogs play a bit of a role in, in uh, the Rocketeer. But um, from Detroit, he went to California, to Hollywood, because they were looking for stunt pilots at the time. And he takes his plane, he takes PV with him, and he gets on a movie set, and he gets kicked off. <laughs> he meets, he, he just like gets into an argument with a Hollywood director. But before he gets kicked off, he meets Betty, uh, which in the comic is the name of the girlfriend, who is based, at least her face is based off of Petty, Betty Page. The model he used for the character was his wife at the time, Brink Stevens. Brink Stevens is a, um, if anybody, if anybody recognizes the name, she was a scream queen in the horror field. That's pretty much where the comics led off. It leads off to Betty's in this field. She was in a Bubsy Berkeley movie. They take um, pictures of her. And then the sleazeball named Marco of Hollywood is kind of like uh, the old casting couch to the girls. I can get you, you know, into Hollywood. And Cliff is does not like him. He does not trust him. He's jealous. And meanwhile, he's working at an air show at Bigelow's, just like in the movie. And that's kind of like how the comic leads up to him finding the rocket pack. So, the so comic, all that was all that was episode or his origin story. That's his origin, okay. not but it's not in the comic. Oh, okay. Kind of fleshed it out. Like he kind of came up with this background for it because when you read the comic. It starts off, you know, you, you see the, the Bulldog Cafe, you see the actual Bulldog named Butch, um, which that Bulldog does make an appearance in the movie, though they don't really, they show him real quick in the movie. But um, it was a nice little nod to the comic. The comic starts off basically, um, it's 1938, and um, he finds this rocket pack in his plane that the, the, these gangsters stuff, and he has this idea to make money. He makes money. He thinks he can impress his girl. He, he's he's a very jealous type, and he's not thinking properly. You know, she wants him to get a steady job, to settle down. And even though she's worked kind of like doing pictures with this sleazy photographer, you know, despite the fact, I always found that reading the comic, despite the fact that they get so angry at each other, and he's so jealous, and she's like, you know, this is my career. I'm trying to do Cliff. I found I always found that. They really loved each other. She might get mad at him and storm off and be like, you're acting like a child. But when he gets hurt, she suddenly forgets all that. And she's like, oh, my God, what happened to Cliff? And when she's in trouble, Cliff's right right there. You know, he's going to go save her. So what happens is. um, So it's a basic 1930s love story as well. Yeah, yeah, I would say yes. It's it's very heavy too on a uh, 1930s slang, um, which he loved, Dave Stevens, and in the movie as well. They really flesh that out and do a lot of lines, um, because the writers of the screenplay were very much along the same lines as Dave Stevens that they just liked that era so much, which is pretty cool too. You know, I, I like the fact that um, they kind of. They were so into this time period that it shows in the writing that we would read it today. We're like, what the 
hell is that? But, you know, back then it, it would, you know, you would, our grandparents might understand exactly what it meant. What happens is the, the, the rocket gets stuffed in his, in his, his, his GB and um, these people come looking for it. So you got the gangsters looking for it, got the Germans looking for it, and you got these two strange gentlemen looking for it. One looks like if a ape was shaved, but was intelligent. Not that apes aren't, because they are gorillas. Um, a human gorilla um, come looking for it. And there's this whole big thing with you know trying to find the rocket, and Cliff uses it, and it gets damaged, and... If you ever read the comic, you'll notice that the rocket is like, it looks like almost like, I'm going to say an Easter egg, but it's not, it, it's very 1930s looking. It's, uh, it's got these coils around it and he damages it on, on the flight. The first flight I believe was, um, saving Malcolm from the, from the plane. He was supposed to do this air show and he's running late because something with Betty and Malcolm goes in the air just to save Cliff's job. And what happens is um, Cliff uh, has to fly the rocket for the first time to save Malcolm from the plane. And that's kind of like right out of the comic when they put that in the movie. So after he saves Malcolm from the plane, the rocket pack gets a little bit damaged and PB fixes it. He makes, the, makes these fins on it. And of course, he, he's the creator of the helmet. But they're still being searched. You know, these guys are trying to get him. And... You got to remember the first two issues are six pages long. So only so much happens. And then it turns out by the end of chapter five, Cliff and Betty get into a fight. Betty is going to go off to Paris with this guy, Marco of Hollywood. They're going through New York. They're going to take a, 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 a ocean liner out. Things get cleared up with the government because they're involved in the creation of this rocket pack. So the inventor of the rocket pack, Turns out to be pulp hero Doc Savage. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Doc Savage was a pulp character from in uh, the the books of the from the old days. Kind of like before comics came out, pulps were very popular. A little side note is I always find it funny that Doc Savage had his own fortress of solitude in in the snow, like in Antarctica, before Superman did. So I I, I personally believe that's where they got the idea for the fortress of solitude. But getting back to it, two of Doc Savage's men worked for it. There was this gentleman by the name of William Harper Johnny Littlejohn. So this dude was like a very prim and proper dude with a monocle. That shaved ape I mentioned is Lieutenant Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Blodgett Monk Mayfair. Now you don't see their names in the books at all. You will not hear the name Doc Savage at all because you'd have to pay rights. Just like you'll never see Betty's name being Betty Page. But Dave Stevens was using her likeness and he felt guilty that he was able to track her down and, and give her royalties for the comic. And they became really good friends and he used to drive her around because at that point she'd gone into, um, not into hiding, but you know she was older. She was popular in her 50s and whatnot. And it's now 30 years later and she's older. And he used to drive around to take her to get her social security checks and whatnot. And he had a friendship with her until the end. Um, so, yeah. So the first first half of the book is all about the origin, the creation of the rocket. Using a rocket for his own good at first. Hey, I can make money off this. Sort of like Spider-Man. And then realizing when he saves 
Malcolm from the plane, he's kind of slowly beginning to realize I can do some good with this. I'm getting good at flying this. And um, when Betty leaves to go with Marco to Paris, he's like, yeah, I'm not letting that happen. Takes the rocket, takes the helmet, gets in his GB, and he's flying across country. They all think he's dead at this point. And there's a note left for Peavy saying, hey, Peavy, you know, I'm sorry to leave this stuff tied up with your hands with the, with the, uh, the authorities. I'll straighten it out. I got to go get, I got to go stop Betty from making a mistake. And I got, I got to, you know, make things right too. At the end, so much like you just said before, the Howard Hughes was in the movie, which is actually interesting to say because I always thought that too. But when you read the comic, Peavy says, uh, you know, I know who invented this. And, and uh, Monk, which is that shaved guy, the, the, the ape like guy, is like, yeah, who's that? It's like Howard Hughes. You know, Howard Hughes invented it. So that's actually in the comic. Hmm. And Monk's just kind of laughing at him. He's like, all right, buddy, you got us. Meanwhile, it's really, you know, Doc Savage, the Man of Bronze. Comic Series 2, Cliff's New York Adventure. This one I like actually much more. Cliff is racing to get there. It's a continuation. He's racing to get there. He meets an old buddy in uh, Long Island, and they're going to f- drive out to New York City to track Betty down. Got one night to do it. And his friend mentions to him, look, I got this gig, this guy. He's a really good guy. He wants to hire you for something. And Cliff's like, yeah, not right now. I, I, I need to find Betty. I, I, I got to find her. They go looking through all the popular clubs of the 1930s, you know, whatever they were at the time I wasn't around. And he finds her finally. And Marco obviously doesn't have nice intentions for her. And she kind of finds that out towards the end. And what happens is they get into a fight, him and Betty. And she realizes that, you know what? This guy is a piece of garbage, this Marco. But Cliff is so angry. And Clifford thinks the opposite. He's like, you know, she doesn't deserve a bum like me. uh, You know, a, a, a pilot, you know, who can't afford to even get a sandwich. So um, before what happens is he goes to watch the boat leave and he sees the, uh, the sleaze bag on the boat. What he doesn't know is that Betty got on a plane to fly back to California. So that was the beginning of it. What happens is he goes to work for this guy just to basically get enough cash to fly back to California himself because he's still got his GB out there got no money for gas and money for a burger and this man turns out to be the shadow uh although you never see him in the hat or the scarf um he goes by he calls him mr jonas but there's some good hints in there that it's a shadow about how he's kind of has this feeling gives you this feeling you know this you know about your mind and whatnot and you can see the evil in men and what's happening is the shadow is working on a case and it turns out the case involves Cliff's carny days, because people from this carnival are slowly being killed one by one, and they're being killed in a very specific way. Their spines are being snapped. And what happens is, when he hears that, he's like, he's stunned, because he knows exactly what it means. They find out that this guy, there's two people left from the carny, him and this stage magician, who happens to be in Atlantic City at the time. So they get into um, an auto gyro and fly down, Cliff and his friend. The shadow, unbeknownst to Cliff, is like, don't worry, you're going to be in good, you'll be safe. The auto gyro is also in the comic, but it's also in the movies, but Howard Hughes has it. 
So I, I kind of like how they worked that into both. When you get to Atlantic City, the magician is asking for a member from the audience, and this huge, like Frankenstein-like guy stands up, and that's Lothar, which is also in the movie. Now the thing about Lothar is that he's this giant, like six-foot tall dude, and he's got a very distinct face. He's actually based on an actor. He's based off an actor called Rondo Hatton. Rondo Hatton looked like, did not normally look like that. That was um, an incident that happened to him from the result of World War I when he was in France. Uh, he was exposed to some poison ga gas. And what happened was he developed a medical disorder called acromegaly. I apologize if I pronounced that wrong. That is basically the continuation of growth of parts of the body. Um, and it's a disorder of the pituitary gland. So the deformations in the bones of the skull, the head, the hands, the feet, internal and external soft issues. Continu they're basically continuing to grow when you've normally grown longer. It's kind of why his face was longer. He had giant hands and whatnot. He had a, a tumor on his pituitary, which made this happen to him, which was from the gas. So he was put into um, the comic as the second comic as the villain he's been the one going around snapping people's spines just like in the movie he was from cliff's carnages like i said and the reason why he's out getting everybody was during that time of the carnival which is right before cliff became fascinated with planes he used to help this magician and one day what he would do is he would go in this trunk underwater and he could hold his breath for so long and the, this magician would go in and kind of get him out of the tank before his lungs would go. And there was this little person in the show who had this crush on Cliff. And Cliff was late for the show, and she had seen it so many times because she had a crush on him that she was like, you know, I'll go in the trunk, you know, she's thinking that, you know, this will make Cliff like her for, for helping his job. And she dies because she's smaller and her, she doesn't have as much lung capacity to hold her breath. Lothar had a crush for her and ever since then he's been on this vendetta of killing everybody from the carnival and so the comic ends with um the shadow coming back and they're on a this like haunted ride and on the atlantic city boardwalk and the thing goes up in flames and lothar dies in the flames and he falls into the water and you know, the shadow kind of you know Saves, saves, helps save Cliff and whatnot. And then what happens is Cliff, the next day or two days after or whatever, the comic series ended with him going to fly back to California. Switch back to California, and um, I believe PV gets word that Cliff is coming back, and Betty walks into the Bulldog Cafe, and he's like, "Holy, Betty, you're back! I thought you were going to Paris." She's like, "No." I'm, 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 I'm here for Cliff and, you know, we're going to, we're going to work everything out, but that's how the comic ended. They, we don't see them ever get back because, uh, don't Dave Stevens then got involved with the movie and whatnot. And he did want to do more comics. He had a lot of ideas for comics. He's very slow at drawing. No, it's not, not as an insult, but he was so meticulous that he was going to have other people draw it and he would write it. So, um, unfortunately you don't see them get reunited in 
Dave Stevens' time. Unfortunately, he died of leukemia in the early 2000s. Um, and when did, when did the series end? After that comic. After right, that, what year? Uh, that was probably in their early 90s because it was like after the movie. They finally got the issue out. Um, and that was Dave Stevens' last issue? That was, that was his last issue. Although he had several ideas, one of which he pitched to um to DC, which would have been this great crossover of um the Rocketeer in the nineteen thirties with Superman. And I, I, I love this idea and um I just think DC was foolish to, to not do this. Basically it was gonna be set in New Jersey and from what I gathered reading it reading the information on it, I think it would take place like right after the events of Cliff's New York adventure, right before he went home. So he's in New Jersey on the night of October 30th, 1938. It's the same night Orson Welles did the broadcasting of war of the worlds where everybody in New Jersey at the time heard the broadcasting after they said, Hey, this is just a reading of the show. People tuned in and thought this was actually going on and freaked out. Well, in this comic, which is going to be a three-issue series, this thing really does go on. So um, the alien crafts a landing, and um, Cliff you know, dons his mask, and these farmers think he's an alien. And then Superman is there, and he kind of like catches him. And it, uh, and Clark's there, I should say, and is under his suit. It's a Superman outfit, and the shirt gets torn, and it reveals the S. And the script was written for it. Um, and I believe the script was written for the second one, and there was notes for the third one. But DC didn't want to do it because they didn't want to have a non-flying Superman. So this could either still be when he could leap tall buildings in a single bound, or he was kind of learning to fly. But it would be very much based like on the early days of the Superman comic books. And unfortunately, this never came to be. I don't even know like who owns the scripts to that, but it's it would. I'm not a Superman guy, but it would have been cool to see uh, to see that comic. I think that would have been a pretty cool crossover, especially tied in with like such such a period thing of the the War of the Worlds. You know, again, it's like a 1930s thing, and that's a whole Dave Stevens thing. So that was going to be um, another idea that he had um, that he would have had somebody help them with, but unfortunately, and you know, it never came to be. Speaking of Superman, because I guess even DC can acknowledge there are some similarities. Tell uh, tell me more about the movie. So, like, what mo- what exactly are the differences from the comic and the movie? Yes. Okay. So, similarities and differences. The Bulldog Cafe is in both. Bulldog Cafe actually, like I said, did exist. Uh, Dave Stevens' aunt used to eat there, which is pretty cool. The Bulldog that I told you about, Butchie, the Butch, and, uh, and that's all in California, or was in California? yes, California. Um, Butchie the Bulldog in the comic, briefly. In the movie, basically for one shot, but I love the fact that they had the bulldog there walking by. And I think a lot of people, if they didn't read the comic, would be like, why is there a dog walking by? PV, of course. Cliff, obviously. The girlfriend, Betty. Now, Betty was based off of Betty Page, but in the car- comic, I'm sorry, in the movie, they had to eventually change her name to Jenny. And instead of being this pinup artist i don't want to say that because she kind of starts out in pictures but she's doing modeling uh she becomes i know know dave stevens was a producer on the movie 
did he come up with Jenny's name or that was no, just so, No, what happened was they fought tooth and nail to keep this Dave Stevens and Disney. They fought against Disney because um, originally the movie was going to come out as a touchstone picture. And in that case, it could have been a bit more closer to the comic. They didn't want to pay rights, though, for the Betty Page character. They didn't want to pay rights for the Shadow or any of Doc Savage's guys. So all that was cut out. Uh, however, they still could have kept the girlfriend named Betty. Um, and actually, in some of the early scripts, she was named Betty until um, finally they, they just said, nope, getting away from it. And while the comic, uh, excuse me, while the movie was going to be coming out as a Touchstone picture, which again, Touchstone was a Disney studio, it's under their banner, which they would put other films out. For instance, like The Nightmare Before Christmas came out as a Touchstone picture. If you look at that movie now on DVD, The Nightmare Before Christmas, it says a Walt Disney picture. They went back and made it one of their own, which they should have just done in the first place. But they didn't know how well that movie would perform. Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was one of the former owners uh, or creators of um, DreamWorks, thank you, came in and said, at the time we worked for Disney, he goes, we're not doing this Touchstone. We're doing this Disney live action. Uh, we need our hit. So the Rocketeer is it. So then it went from going close to the comic to kind of going a little bit away. So uh, Betty becomes Jenny. Uh, Chaplin's airfield was in the comic. It's in the movie. That's actual an actual airfield. Um, in the movie, it was an abandoned, originally it was an abandoned World War II landing strip in Santa Monica. And there they built Chaplin airfield and the hangars and everything, which is still there to this day, which is pretty cool. Um, Bigelow's Air Circus is in the comic, but as mentioned briefly, more to do with it in the com in the movie. The whole scene with Malcolm is there. He's save saving Malcolm. And one of the things was in the comic when he saves Malcolm from the plane. If you read the comic, but if you listen to the movie closely, you're going to hear a line from the comic where he's trying to pull Malcolm out of the seat. And he says, come on, like you big tub of guts. And that's actually from the comic. Instead of the, in, in, in the comic, the plane crashes into a water tower after he saves him. The movie crashes into a fuel truck. You get that exp that movie explosion everybody likes. Uh, the Rocket Pack. Rocket Pack is in it. It does get changed for the movie. It, it, it should kind of touch on later, but it does. It goes from like a single engine to a um, kind of like a double engine. Um, it's, it's, it is like purplish in the comic, and in this one, it's steel. Uh, I would say it's kind of like, it's not stainless steel, but that's what it reminds me of. I like the rocket pack in the movie much better personally. Um, PV makes the helmet in the in, in the con in the movie. Of course, he makes it out of that radio in, in the comic. Mm -hmm. They just show him making it. They add the fin, same thing. Cliff saves Malcolm. Um, the rocket is called the Sirius X three in both. The Germans were after it. They play with the German part more so in this. What about the mafia? Is that ever in the comic? Yeah, I think they're the guys who steal it, um, but they kind of play up that that end of it more in the movie. Howard Hughes, of course, he's mentioned in the comic. He's the creator of the rock. The casting of so they, they they needed a villain, somebody in that role. So like if you were looking at a movie, the rocket pack is the MacGuffin. Mm -hmm. The MacGuffin is the item that makes your movie move along. So in Star Wars, it's the Death Star plans. It's how you meet your characters. It's how all that stuff 
is what the movie revolves around. MacGuffin is the rocket pack, and that's how we meet our characters. So Dave Stevens, what's funny about the rocket pack is, like I said, I'm not a fan of the comic rocket. I, I don't think it would have enough power to literally lift a man, whereas the movie one is two rockets. Um, Dave Stevens said about the rocket, they redesigned it for the movie, and he said, quote, I was especially happy with Jim's crew. Jim is the production designer, James Bissell. Uh, re- redesigned my rocket pack. I was never happy with my conception of it. And now the thruster has been changed from something resembling a toy bomb into a replica of a functioning engine. Now it actually fires like a jet. So I thought that was pretty cool that he liked the um, the new version of the rocket. I thought that was yeah, kind of neat. I love it when um, the creators actually get involved. He was very involved. Granted, he didn't he didn't redesign the the rocket pack, but he was on set every day, every night, from pre production, you know, shooting until final days of shooting. And you know, he was there for any reference. He was there for whatever they needed, and um, he was there just gave him all his blueprints and his designs and his reference for the nineteen thirties, which was a ton of stuff. Because he used to always cut things like clippings and stuff like that. There was actually a thing about the helmet, which is just it's so ridiculous. So at the time, Michael Eisner was the CEO of Disney Studios, and you have Katzenberg. They didn't like the helmet. They thought the helmet looked stupid. They thought it. They wanted, and I, I am serious when I say this, they wanted the helmet to be more like an astronaut's. They wanted the helmet almost to be modernized. And um, the director, Joe Johnson, who has a great film history, like his first film he directed was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but got his career at ILM um, working on Star Wars and Raiders and Empire. He helped design Boba Fett, uh, him and Ralph McQuarrie. And uh, it was George Lucas who pushed him into directing. And he was like, what are you doing, firing me? And Lucas, I guess, saw in him the amount of talent he had. And it's a great thing he did. I mean, he did uh, Honey, Shrunk the Kids. He did The Rocketeer, Captain America, the first one, which I thought was the best. You know, it just had that Rocketeer feel, um, Jurassic Park 3. So, yeah, they, they wanted to get rid of that helmet. And Joe Johnson was, uh, was like, you get rid of the helmet, I walk. You're changing it. It's not The Rocketeer. So Dave Stevens was like, look, give me like a weekend. I'll redraw it. I have a guy who can sculpt it. If you don't like it, then discuss it. So they went ahead. They had their weekend. They were able to fix it and move on with it, which was great because it's part of who the Rocketeer is, that helmet. It's kind of like insect looking, but it's, you know, it's not. It's it's a great, great looking helmet. Uh, I love that thing. Um, so, yeah, so that was that. And then they brought in um, characters like, like Howard Hughes and the mobster Eddie Valentine brought him in more. Uh, Timothy Dalton played an Errol Flynn-like character named Noah Sinclair. Now, the interesting thing about Neville Sinclair and I can't think of anybody better than uh, Timothy Dalton for that role. I, I thought he was just excellent. Even to this day, I think about it and I'm like, 
he's really good at this. He was kind of based off of Errol Flynn. And, of course, Errol Flynn was well-known for um, Robin Hood, the Robin Hood movies at the time. So his Laughing Bandit is kind of like an homage to that. Errol Flynn at the time was considered or thought of to be a Nazi sympathizer. That was a big thing in, in, uh, in Hollywood back at the time. Of course, it's turned out recently, uh, not recently, but it was proven that Errol Flynn was not, in fact, one. Because that makes a that could ruin your career, you know, back then, you know, especially back then. Yeah, the blacklist. Uh, yep. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, Roddy McDowell got blacklisted in uh, like the 50s. They, he had, because he was in, in Hollywood since a kid, he had a collection of movie memorabilia they took away from him because they thought he was part of the Cold War. He's just an actor, you know, like Roddy McDowell is a cool guy. So, Nova Sinclair, that dashing man finds out about Jenny and Cliff, you know, through the course of the movie, Cliff visits the set and kind of knocks it down. And he's telling Jenny, you know, I, I, you want to be the first to know about something great. You know, I got this rocket pack. And Neville is kind of like, Hey, this is exactly what we needed. And it turns out that, so Nova Sinclair is the, the rogue, if you will, of this movie. Um, the name itself came from a play on a name in a Sherlock Holmes film uh, story. And of course, Neville gets that rocket at the end. Now, the thing, if you remember when he hands over the rocket, he kind of moves the gum away on the rocket pack because it's a quarter ricochet. Again, that, that plays back to the whole Beeman's gum theme. And, and, and in the very beginning of the film, Chris puts uh, his Beeman's gum on the, the rudder of the plane, the G-beam, and he goes to fly it. And that Cliff, uh, I'm sorry, PB takes it off. Cliff considers it good luck. Pilots, I guess, are kind of superstitious. And um, it's kind of foreshadowing later on where when the rocket catch a, catches uh, the ricochet and it's leaking the fuel, PB takes the gum and sticks it, hoping to plug up the hole long enough to save Jenny. And then uh, that's how they, you know, Devil doesn't get away. They kind of loosen up the, the gum and he goes, he goes, boom. Mm -hmm. spoilers. Um, spoilers. Sorry, folks. <laughs> uh, so Neville would not have been back for the sequel. Uh, there was, although Lothar was considered, there was going to be a trilogy of films. Um, Bill Campbell, who played Cliff Secord, signed on for three films. And I, I, I think it would have been so cool. There was one idea of like, so spoiler, um, Lothar blows up in an explosion on, on the, the Zeppelin. However, uh, there was going to be like, he might emerge out of a river, just burnt up. And, you know, but you know, that was one idea. Um, cause the movie does end with the schematics back in hand, uh, even though the rock is destroyed. Um, Jenny had a copy of the schematics and gives it to PV and PV's kind of like, I can, I can kind of build this better. So after this movie, Rocketeer comes out, it does what it does at the box office, but years later, where do you see the Rocketeer, you know, like today? Well, the one thing was that what they planned on doing since it was going to be a trilogy was they were going to have a Rocketeer cartoon come out, in between the films. So that way it would kind of keep people's attention. The problem that happened was that 
the Rocketeer, when it came out, came out in the summer of Terminator 2 and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So it had a lot of tough competition. Uh, so Disney felt it underperformed, which I, I honestly don't agree with. Today, I think, you know, there was, a, of course, talk of a reboot a while ago, and that never came to pass. Um, there was a Disney Junior show on uh, the channel Disney Junior called The Rocketeer. And actually, Bill Campbell voiced the character in that. It's not exactly where I saw The Rocketeer going, if anywhere. I didn't think it would be on a kid's show, which was interesting. I'll give it that. But um, the show, Bill Campbell plays a character, um, still a Secord, called Dave Secord, who is named after Dave Stevens and, of course, a, a child of uh, or a great-grandchild of, of, of Cliff Secord. Um, his daughter, Kit, has a bulldog named Butch, and him and his wife own the Bulldog Cafe. So the show, which did get great results from um, from parents and kids alike, did get canceled though in one season, which was a real shame because I thought I, it was a cute thing for kids. You know, it wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible altogether. The there was a the reboot idea, which sounded interesting. It was going to take place six years after the movie, and. The Rocketeer and Cliff Secord has had vanished while fighting the Nazis. And then a, a new hero emerges, which is a young African American female pilot. She takes up the mantle of the Rocketeer, trying to stop um, corrupt rocket scientists from stealing the, the rocket again and um, giving them the upper hand in the Cold War. This was like set to go for a while. And then just never came to be uh why i don't know if they will do it i don't know i think if they didn't go with that reboot your best you know bill campbell's still alive joe johnson said he would redirect he would direct another one definitely um which i would love to see because i thought he did he's great at that period filming i mean rocketeer captain america just they they look great I think at this point you would have to kind of go the Indiana Jones route if you wanted the original cast back and have him older. Um, and he's not old to the point where, you know, you can't see him flying. It would take place if that was 1938 and it's so how many years later, he could still in theory be a pilot. He could still, you know, it'd probably take place during uh, the, the late fifties, early sixties, like Indy with the Russians in the Cold War. So you can still have all those threats of what was happening, you know, kind of like in the first one. You could just come up with new ideas. What I would like to have seen personally in the sequel was um, Cliff go to war, World War II, as a pilot. I'd like to see him going into his plane and putting that demon's gum on it and, uh, you know, the, the commander or whatever yelling at him, you know, that's government property. You can't put gum on it. And, you know, a nice, he's a hotshot pilot. He always has been. He still is. Dog fights with the, the axes, axes, with the axis planes, you know, fighting the Nazis and, and that. I would love to have then seen a Rocketeer version bull, um, dog fight 
with the Rocketeer like chasing after German planes or being chased by, and you got that, you know, that, um, that rocket fire from planes streaking by. And I think they could have done so many amazing things with the flying scenes. I think that was probably the best route to go. Disney always did consider this their Indiana Jones in the sky. So if you look at it that way, it makes sense. And this is even before they owned Indiana Jones. That's where I liked as far as a second movie. And in the future, if they ever did one, I think their best bet really would be to kind of like, it's kind of like a lame cliche nowadays where the character's got a son or whatever, but you know, maybe he passes the mantle. It's not like the, the indie hat where only he can wear it. It's a helmet. It's, you know, maybe anybody could be the Rocketeer. That might have been cool. But um, there was something that was interesting um, in regards to the movie is how they made him fly. So several of the scenes were done with wires, as you, as you would imagine. The scene in the South Seas Club when he's flying around, wire work. Several, some of the scenes were stop motion performed by ILM, and some of it was live action. Uh, well, Tom, honestly, as you can see, I can go on and on about this. For our listeners out there, there, there's so much more information I can just babble about. And my wife will tell you, yes. Unfortunately, we didn't get to the collecting. I apologize. I didn't get to tell you about how they made him fly. I didn't even get to tell you where you could look in Disney's Hollywood Studios for Rocketeer Easter eggs. However... If you did like this Rocketeer radio, let us know and I can come back and tell you more about Cliff Secord and the Rocketeer. This was actually quite fun this week. Judith Hogue, the original April O'Neil from the 1990 Turtles movie, and NECA have announced a movie-accurate April O'Neil figure based on her likeness for 2021. Yeah, and that's pretty cool because... um. You know, she was the first April. Uh, she had a big part in the movie. Um, and it's good to see her more involved with the Turtles. Because after the first... I always was like, why the hell did they replace her? You know, after the first movie. I think she left. They didn't replace her. One of the things she said was that she felt the movie was too violent. And she kept telling the producers. And she thinks maybe that was what. Jim Henson felt the same way. Um but it's a movie about ninjas. What do you expect? Judith Hogue on her Instagram and Twitter feed will actually... She just stole this idea right from my head. She is actually going to follow NECA from concept all the way to finished product. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's pretty cool. And it'll give a person yeah. an inside view of how a toy's made. Exactly. Like, for years, I wanted to do something similar on toy lines. And then believe it or not, 2020 was the year I was going to fly out to China to at least some factory just to actually see how molds are made and, you know, write, write something up on it. But that would have been interesting. COVID hit and that, that idea got scrapped, yeah, but it's, it's nice seeing that, uh, you know, somebody's picking up the ball. Yeah. Thanks a lot. COVID. One more thing you ruined. Uh, yeah, that that this sounds like a great thing. Um, and for you Turtles fans, again, if you're interested in picking up the animated metalhead, it is now available this week at the NECA store. 
Same thing as they did with Toka and Razar. You have one week. It started last Friday. It will end this Friday, the 21st of this month. And that'll be your only chance to get it. The only downside, you have to wait till November to actually receive the figure. But at least they're doing something, you know. A lot of these companies are just, you know, trying to figure out what they're going to do with the bots. I'm happy to see NECA actually taking a stand and, and helping right. the figures. Um, if you Godzilla fans, there is short notice, but there's a Godzilla museum. And then I apologize for how I'm going to mispronounce this. In Naijijin no Mori Park in Awaji Island, Japan. It's open from August 8th to the 31st. Um, it's going to have movie props, figures, chibi workshop, uh, giant Godzilla, mech Godzilla, Mothra, exclusive merchandise, even food that looks like Godzilla. This is going to be um, pretty sweet. It's, again, limited right now, but hopefully this will become a main thing uh, in Japan for, for the major Godzilla fans and the make a pilgrimage out there. The Netflix show Castlevania, Diamond Select Toys, has released figures based on the show. These figures look excellent. If you love the show, I mean, it's like these figures walk right out of your TV. For you fans of the Star Wars Holiday Special, and it's not a special. It's a it's special. It's all you... Lego. Yeah, well, like the original, there's nothing special about it. Disney is putting out the Star Wars Holiday Special, Lego style. Uh, it's going to be on Disney Plus November 17th. And I believe there's going to be even references to the original live action. So that sounds pretty cool. That actually, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm kind of interested in it. Yeah. I mean, Ray's going to be in it. DVD. Yeah, yeah. And it's on Disney Plus, and they've been doing pretty well with Star Wars. So. Yeah, and you know what? We got Boba Fett on the first holiday special. Maybe That's a good point. Maybe Lego has a gift for us this year as well. That's a good point. The loyal subjects, they are doing five-inch articulated figures of several different characters, one of which is a character from Big Trouble in Little China, the John Carpenter movie. One I'm, I'm very interested in is the Lord of the Rings Gandalf. Uh, it comes with the staff with the crystal on it, his sword Glamdring, and two sets of hands. It looks really, really sweet. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, the loyal subjects are... are a pretty good company with with miniatures and and the the only back or the only problem or complaint i have with them is they really like to do variants especially extremely limited variants like when they did the masters of the universe line i i was collecting them all but then if you're a completionist it'll break your heart they came out with two golden he-man figures one was supposed to be randomly packed, and I forgot what they did with the other one. I think they they actually kept the other one for you know for their company, but stuff like that just just kind of killed it. Then later yeah. on, as the line progressed, they were in blind boxes, which oh. upset a whole bunch of other collectors. So yeah. that's why well, right now I'm just right into the Mattel minis. I'm glad they're back. The, the Gandalf looks great. I mean, it looks like Ian McKellen. I definitely want it. Um, like you love Lord of the Rings, but it's um, it is pretty cool. But I guess um, see where it winds up in the shelves. Uh, the McFarlane Raw Ten, you remember that the 
part animal, part cyborg. I think you're talking about recently, right? Yeah, the killer shark, reptar. 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 Yeah. And, uh, and, and Cyber Snake. All right, they're all now available at Walmart for $19.99. And then Tron 3 with Jared Leto. Leto, did you hear about this? I did. I am... I don't know how it's going to tie into the second one, from the second one. And I'm thinking, will this have something to do with to help promote the ride that they're building right now in Disney World? Because that Tron light cycle ride is so cool looking in China that uh, I can't wait for this thing to open in the States. Pre-order from NECA. More Gremlins. I, I don't know what's wrong with me lately. I'm talking about Gremlins. These are prop replica stunt puppets. There is the Gremlins 2 Flasher Gremlin. Comes with, a tre- <laughs> comes with a trench coat and sunglasses. It's so per- so weird. It's $249. It is... um. A puppet. So this is what why it's priced at that. It's like a life-size gremlin puppet. Um, there is also a regular gremlin stunt puppet for $199.99. I guess the flasher because you get in the coat and the glasses. And I don't know if these come with like rods for the arms or not. But um, they are detailed. They're very, very detailed for that, you know, just looking at them. So it's... NECA's- yeah, see, so, something like that with NECA, they should start like their own HasLab or crowdfunding for something like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you really got to be a hardcore Gremlins fan to. And yeah. I, I would love to know if they're out there. Like, oh, I'm sure they are. I mean, am I only one who likes these? Who loves looking at these toys enough? Because <laughs> I, I keep talking about, it, but somebody's got to like it. Factory Entertainment has more Jaws pre-orders for you Jaws fans. We have. A Jaws Bruce the Shark premium motion statue for $49.99. Jaws stainless steel bottle opener, $24.99. Jaws beach closed tin tote, which is basically a lunchbox, $16.99. Jaws Orker, the boat Orker, that is, I said, I said that's so terrible. Microfiber towel, $11.99. Jaws Orker boat diorama, which is it's really sweet. It's like Chief Brody. Uh, fighting the shark, $59.99, and a Jaws 3D poster diorama, $59.99. Now, this is not Jaws 3D, the stupid movie. This is a 3D poster of Jaws, that image of the shark coming up the water with the girl swimming. So think of that as like a 3D poster, and that's what that is. Well, McFarlane um, Toys did that a few years ago. Did they uh, really? I can, yeah. They took the poster and just made it 3D. Uh, Incendium Online has previews of new toys of Highlander. It's going to be Kurgan and Connor McCloud and also Bill and Ted. Their previews, you do not see their face. It's just the, the, the back of the toy. But they did show the skull, that skull helmet Kurgan wears in the movie, if you're a Highlander fan. So it's, it looks like they're going all out. And finally, um, Playmates Toys, uh, Home of the Turtles, are doing the Godzilla vs. Kong toys. Um, these are going to be six inches and going to be pretty sweet looking. There is um, some images up online already. I don't know when that movie comes out. I think it's May 2021. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that stuff. Uh, Tom, who are you rooting for? Kong or Godzilla? Probably Godzilla. I'm a Kong guy all the way. Even my brother and I, when we were kids, we used to play King Kong and Godzilla and fight. Like we used to wrestle that way. I always had to be King Kong, and, which is fine because he had to be Godzilla. So. 
I only like Godzilla because I mean that. Like growing up, I, don't, I guess I only saw King Kong once. I, I love Godzilla. The- Godzilla had more appeal. Well, he also had a cyborg. There would make a Godzilla. Yes, and so Godzilla. That's, that's he, what got me hooked. He was on every Thanksgiving. There's a movie marathon of him growing up as a kid. I, yeah. n- I'll never forget watching those, and I just loved the guy in the suit, um, the monsters. But like, my heart's always been to King Kong. It's some sad news, but let's talk about the big news of the week. So DC Comics did a massive layoff this week. AT and T just just butchered pretty much everything that was DC, with you know some exceptions. Um, DC collectibles gone, gone completely. I mean, if you look at it from a business standpoint, great for McFarlane. You know, he can now he has even more of an opportunity to do what DC collectibles used to do. But I mean, it, it's sad. It, it's heartbreaking seeing uh, people lose their jobs, people losing their jobs. Tough um, time, too. You know, just COVID stuff. And yeah, the timing was just yeah. I mean, they're a corporation. Yeah, I understand that. But at the same time, I mean, I don't know. According to Jim Lee. 20 to 25 percent of their inventory of of uh, titles they were publishing were all under 19,000 copies. I mean, I, I why why not I'm just not kill those books, you know, and, and just well, that's what they did basically. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I I believe I could be wrong, but like from they... what I heard, 40,000 copies is where you break even. So they're. Are they not publishing at all now? They're publishing some stuff, but a lot of there was a lot of cancellations. Uh, Teen Titans got canceled. Batgirl, Aquaman, and that's just a that's a small list of of, of a long list of titles. Do you think I just this, don't want to go over it. But do you think this is the future of comics? Do you think uh, Marvel's next? Do you think they'll follow suit? Or that's well. That's what I'm scared. Companies. Yeah, uh, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I don't care. I, I'm gonna just go out on a limb and say in this. I think once the Marvel movie started, I think Marvel stopped caring about comics. Okay. I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll put it to you this way: When was the last time you picked up a Marvel comic? I don't even read comics. Um, yeah. Comics are for kids. Uh, <laughs> more sorry. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. I don't. Uh, you know, like I, I want, why not put them online? But I guess even that wouldn't last, you know? Well, like, I mean, I know they are part of, yeah, that's part of Jim Lee's plan. Apparently they're going to go global. We're going to see more digital content. Okay. Um, the DC app. I mean, we knew it once HBO max started that the DC apps going away. Yeah. Are all the shows going to HBO now? They are. So it kind of seems like, they're going to just focus on like Batman movies and stuff you know like what? that. I really hope not. I mean, Jim Lee did a, an interview on the Hollywood reporter and he basically said, you know, we're not going to license out any of our characters. Marvel isn't going to start buying them, but it is, it does send a bad message to the rest of the comic community. Right. You know, I mean, you so know, if the I, main if the main two are are hurting, 
imagine IDW. Uh, well, boom. Dark, Dark Horse. You know, like Dark Horse has been around so long, but if this is one of the big guys, what's going to happen what? to Dark Horse? Dark Horse, Dark Horse is actually smart. They actually put out, I mean, IDW up to an extent is doing the same thing. Dark Horse actually puts out other books, though. Right. They have a whole, like, like prose section. They don't just do comics. They do, right. They do novels. Right. Or, or a Pixel Dan book coming out. They just do Dark Horse. Exactly. And then IDW, along those lines, they have those collected editions. I mean, they're, granted, they're overpriced, but, I mean, that's that's revenue right there. Yeah. Yeah. So... So, yeah, it's going to be interesting seeing the next couple of months what happens to the comic book industry. I mean, even, even a year, next next year. Yeah. Between yeah. COVID and, and then this. I'm I'm also kind of curious about next weekend's DC fandom. Yeah. There's not going to be many fans. I, or, I know. Not many happy ones. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, how many people? I mean, People might not. Uh, I really it, hope it's just not Jim Lee and. Is it and virtual? Jeff, yeah, the whole okay. thing. I'm hoping that you know Jim Lee and Jeff Johns don't sit around for half an hour, being like, "Look, this is what's left." And you know, this also goes to think about like the local comic shop. How is this going to affect them? They're dying right now. Um, yeah, they said this week they announced five comic book stores will be closing. Just, I mean, you have to you have to think about it. Apparently, DC books were for some store. Well, I'll put it to you this way: Mile High Comics said DC stores accounted for, or excuse me, DC comics accounted for twenty percent of their revenue. Wow. And if that, that's being cut, if that's just new books. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I mean, and then also you have to. Also think about all the Kickstarters from these creators now. I right. mean, right now, Ethan Van Shiver's Scott, uh, Cyberfrog is over a million dollars right now. And just on really? a Kickstarter, on, uh, on Indiegogo. So it's almost like you could, these guys can do their own books, keep keep on the character, and you know be successful in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Image Comics... With as little overhead as possible, if you want to think about it, and you know, I hope I'm not insulting anybody, but you know, I, I, I always thought Image was a was a great leader in in independent books, but you're gonna we're gonna start seeing a, a I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but we're gonna start seeing a society where kids probably aren't gonna know who Superman or Batman are uh, until they see them live action. Yeah, I was about to say, unless they see the movie, um, or they get the toys and, and you know through another company in Target. But yeah, that's yeah, that's a good um, point. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I, I hope something drastically happens. You yeah. Know, but um, but you know, AT and T. I mean, maybe even Disney. You know, they really don't. They care about making money. Yeah. Bottom Granted, line. Sure, that's you know that's business, but I mean at the same time, I mean, see something go for like eighty years, like a comic book, like Batman or you know Superman, however old they are, and then suddenly not be out anymore. That's like that's a scary world. I think. Yeah, I mean that's old, you know, obviously older than us, but like 
to think, you know, like. I mean, yeah, we have 80 years worth of books and, uh, you know, very, um, unless you're, you know, super hardcore, you know, fan, you know, I mean, how many people out there have read every issue of Detective, every issue of, you know, Batman, then you have Batman and the Outsiders and Action Comics and Superman Adventures, Man of Steel. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can keep going on and on, but I don't know. It's also like, also, um, what about those kids or teenagers right now who wanted to be a comic book writer or artist? Oh, and, yeah. you know, I mean, like, do they, unless they go, um, well, you know, a, a lot of the guys, of Tom McFarlane, Rob, Robert Kirkman, they said, you know what, create your own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Create your own character. Yeah. You don't want to work for the big two because, yeah. I mean, well, obviously look, look what's happening, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. Create your own and it's, you have ownership rights and all that stuff and, you know, you can kind of do with you want without management stepping in and saying, you know, no, we need this. We need a marketing gimmick. You know, you know, to everyone that got laid off, you know, Bob yes. Harris, uh, Good luck. Hank Canals. Yeah. Don't, you know. Good luck with everything. It's rough and... right now, but, you know. You know what? There's still other companies out there, you know. Yeah, um, maybe they'll start their own. Yeah. Or, you know, to everybody at DC Collectibles, I mean, you have the experience, you know. Uh, Mattel's out there. NECA, McFarlane. You know, I'm just... Take take two weeks off and and start putting out apps application, yeah, yeah. and just hang in there. Yeah, you know yeah. it's it's never a good thing when it happens, but they say one door closes, another one opens. All that cliche, but you know, hopefully these people land on their feet, and um, you know that's more important, of course, than any any comic book or not. So, you know, tough time out there. It just got tougher for some people. But um, hang in there. You know, it's, yeah. you know, we wish you the best. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Oh, we Content. also have, we, we also have something special for you folks at home. You, for you, our listeners. So, so as you can tell, Toy Lines is is approaching some new territory. We're gonna start expanding our library of podcasts, and uh, we want to celebrate it. You know, we're, we're getting slowly getting staff involved and we want to get you involved. So we have the Masters of the Universe Origins Contest. So we're going to say a special word, Donatello in this particular case. Well, I'll repeat oh. it later. I didn't know that. Actually. <laughs> I didn't know what the word was. <laughs> I forgot to ask. If you go and email us at toys, T-O-Y-S, podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at gmail.com. We're asking for two things. One, listen to our podcast, find out the special word. Which and two, was in this episode. Which was in this episode, Donatello. No, pre- no previous episode before, so don't worry. You don't have to listen to all of them if you don't want to. It would be nice if you did, though. Yeah. And uh, leave us a comment. You know, we're always asking people to join the conversation. Leave yeah. us a comment. What you like, don't like, 
what you'd like to see or hear, I should say. Um, yep. And yeah, and, and good luck. And, and how, Tom, will the, the winner be chosen? We're gonna have a. We're gonna take all the emails you have until this Friday to send us the email. Yeah. That would be, I'm sorry, so Friday, Friday the twenty first. Friday the twenty first. Yep, at midnight, we'll uh, take all the emails, throw them in the random randomizer, and choose a winner. And the winner will will receive a Masters of the Universe Origins Prince Adam Sky Sled package. They're very hard to come by, so good luck. Yes. Especially if you love Masters of the Universe. Yes, this is the first MOTU contest. Yep. So good luck. So Norman. yeah, email us with your comment and put in the special secret word Donatello. Donatello. And good luck. Good luck. Uh, I'd like to just give a special thank you to Brian Salvatore for our new um, this episode's intro and outro titled Rocketeer Radio. Thank you very much for uh, getting that done for us. And uh, thank you. Please follow us on social media at Twitter, Instagram. You can find us at Toy Lines. And on Facebook, you can find us at Toy Lines or Toy Shelf Magazine. Once again, join the conversation at toyspodcast at gmail.com. Please leave us a comment on all of our platforms, Podbeam, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Give us a rating, or you can do all three. Thank you once again to Shared Universe Podcast Studio for all their help, and congratulations to Rob McCallum on finishing up his action figure adventure documentary. He had the auction this past Thursday, and... They brought in a lot of lot of uh, money for charity, so congratulations to them. Congratulations, yeah, and congratulations, and special congratulations to the guy that got that USS flag. That went for some big, big bucks, over a thousand, I think. Wow, wow, yeah. Well, everyone, stay safe. We'll see you next week with a regular episode of Toy Lines. Play with your toys, and don't forget to see the word. Right, Donatello. Take care, folks. Take care. Donatello.